This morning, I want us to take an historical view of the family. Now, please understand, there's not any way in the brief time that we have that we could certainly trace the development and the structure of family and what it's looked like through the centuries and the generations upon generations of people that we could study and and know about and learn from. But I've been thinking about family a lot. I usually do this time of year. There's so much going on. It's a wedding time. It's a graduation time. It's Memorial Day. We recall those who have preceded us. There are so many things that draw us to think about families, our families, what families look like. Friday evening, I watched my nephew get married. Outdoors, under a tent with the flaps down in eastern Oklahoma. Now, if you were watching any radar at all on Friday evening and saw a glimpse of eastern Oklahoma, we were in a monsoon. I was holding the flaps down with my feet along the side of the tent and watching these rivers run through. It was a glorious, messy, muddy event that celebrated love and life and marriage. I looked from where I was and I saw his mother and father sitting there. I performed their wedding in June of 1986. My sister-in-law, I was the brother she never had and the brother she didn't want. (laughs) Nonetheless, they let me perform their wedding ceremony. Seated next to them were my mother and father-in-law, married well over 60 years now. And I thought, this is what it's about. The way home yesterday, we stopped and saw my folks. If Lord willing, they'll celebrate their 69th anniversary in August. I'm blessed. I've been raised by people who understand mentored by people who understand and had the blessed privilege of seeing people who understand how marriage is supposed to work. Now, before you get the wrong idea, don't even begin to think there were never problems, there were never fights, there were never hard times, there were never struggles. There always are. There always have been. There always will be. Scripture bears that out. In fact, if you've got your Bible, I want you to find the Old Testament book of Ruth. Ruth is one of the most amazing love stories in all the Word of God. But it's also a story of struggle. It's a story of making life work even when it looks like it won't work. And just to give you a brief synopsis, Ruth married a man and he passed away. Her father-in-law had passed away. Her brother-in-law's passed away. She clung to her mother-in-law, and Ruth and Naomi ventured forward to try to make the best out of life that they possibly could together. But I want to tell you something. Life is hard. It was hard. It is hard. They struggled as two widow women trying to get along and get by. But God did not forsake them. God does not forsake his people. 
even when it's hard. If there's anything I would tell you this morning, and I wish you would write it down, it's a simple thing, but it's this. In Christ, we can do hard things. The world may tell us no. The world may say you can't pull that off. You can't do that. But in Christ, we can do hard things. And when you read the story of Ruth, you come to the fourth chapter and you see how God made what looked unworkable work. And I want us to read a big portion of that fourth chapter together this morning. And you'll see the reason why. And you'll understand how God makes it work before we're done. The book of Ruth, the fourth chapter. We're going to begin reading at verse 1. If you've got your Bible open, if you can, Will, I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning in honor of our Father as we read together from his inspired word. Ruth chapter one, beginning or chapter four, beginning at verse one, we read these words. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, listen, Boaz was setting him up all along the way. Just want you to know that if you don't pick up on it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Well, at this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today... Your witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, we are witnesses May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. 
He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Now before you close your Bible, I want to invite you to look back up to verse 14. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. Did you get that? Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. Pray with me. Father, faithful one, provider, praise be to you this day. For what you have done. Lord as we think about and consider family. And the struggles of family today. I, I just pray you'd speak to our hearts. God I pray you'd allow me to just disappear up here. We need less of me and more of you. Teach us your way. Challenge us to walk in it. And Father, find here people who will be obedient to your calling. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I know families face hard times. I, I'm not stupid or naive in regard to this. I've seen it, I've witnessed it, I've been in it, I've walked alongside of it. But I believe family is worth talking about. And the reason why is because I believe that today we need to be ringing from the pulpit and from our churches the simple truth needs to be sounding forth. Family is valuable. Now please understand too, I know families all over the place. I stand up here every Sunday morning and I look. I see intact families. And I see broken families. And I see blended families. And I see single person families. And I see single parent families. And you know what? There are struggles in every type of family we want to describe. There are unusual struggles for some. There are normal struggles for others. But any way around it, it's struggle. And people are struggling along and they're feeling like, I'm all by myself. No one understands. No one else is going through this. No one is there. I want you to know something, my friends. I want you to know a couple of things. But one thing in particular I want you to know. You are not alone. God is there. He knows your struggle. He sees your difficulty. He knows what you're going through. And if you did not hear anything else and you don't hear anything else the rest of this morning, please hear this. He has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. I want us to think about the family in, in kind of a panoramic perspective if we can and please understand what I said we we can't possibly cover everything but but I want us to think about the family in the good old days I'll be perfectly honest I'm really not sure what the good old days are I, I hear people talk about them and you know 
Visiting with my in-laws the other day as we were driving to, I don't know if we're going to the rehearsal or going to the wedding, I don't even remember now, but we were talking and I, I don't even know how it got started. Some strange conversations always occur in a car. Have you ever noticed that? The weirdest things get talked about. And we were talking about outhouses. The good old days. Now, if you've ever been in an outhouse, you know those are not good old days. If you haven't, languish in your ignorance. And just think of it as the good old days, all right? But we were talking about these things, and I, and I realized, you know what? Life has changed a lot, even in my lifetime, because, yes, I have been in an outhouse in the middle of the night in winter. It was cold. I get it. But let's think about family, not outhouses. Let's think about life inside the family unit, if we can, for a moment. You know, there was a time in the history, and please understand too, there are always people who are outside of what the norms are. But there was a time when, when life goals and family goals were pretty much one and the same. People grew up inside of a family and their hope was to grow up and to be able to replicate the life and the family ties and the family shape that they had that they grew up in. And I know that people say, well, that's very naive. It's really not. In early America, settlers were not unlike those, those pilgrims who traveled throughout the Middle East in the early days of Hebrew life. They bonded themselves together. They risked everything together. To find a new place. They faced an unknown land. They faced unknown dangers. They fought enemies together. They did all of this trying to find a place where their families could grow and prosper and worship and be blessed. Doesn't matter whether you're talking about the Hebrews or the pilgrims. The story is virtually the same. The role of each individual in the family was pretty much understood. Each one contributed according to their gifts, their ability, their gender, their place. And, and the whole point was that everyone contributed to the needs of the family as a whole. Family ties were strong. And family was intimate. And when I say intimate, don't immediately go to sexuality. That's not it. We've, we've taken that word and twisted it. Intimate meant that these people were connected. They were close. They understood each other. They felt together. They rejoiced together. They wept together. They suffered together. They prospered together. There was an intimacy of purpose. And members of the family felt secure in that. And family units were the strength of the community. They were the strength of... Here's the reality. The community was to the family what the family was to individual members. Good fortune was shared together. Misfortune was shared together. And in the midst of that, in so many cultures, even outside of Christian cultures, in other areas where there were different religions, but in so many cultures, religion was central to that concept. Certainly that was true in Hebrew life, and it's been true in much of American life. In our culture, there was so much of a, a shared respect for the sanctity of marriage. 
even for those who weren't believers, there was a concept, there was an idea that this was a divine institution. There was an understanding that this was a God-given gift to mankind. And there was an understanding that when the family comes together, when there's a marriage that occurs, there is a building block, there is a safe space, there is a place for children and family to grow and to prosper and to be blessed and to bless one another as well as blessing others. Certainly that's true in Hebrew history. Read the Old Testament and look at the family trees. They understood the importance of family and genealogy and and being together. And in the midst of all of that, people say, well, I, you know, I can't read the Old Testament. All the begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat. So. Can I tell you something about those begats? Friend, those begats represent generation upon generation upon generation of people who understood the importance of their family, understood the importance of raising their children, nurturing their children, and connecting their children to family and faith. That's what those begats are. So don't think they're not important. They are. And in those types of communities, there was the understanding that the care and nurture of children was a common responsibility of home, faith, family, and education. In that order. Home and family first, the faith community secondary, and the education process third. That was kind of what family was in the good old days. Now, I know that there have always been failures. has to be. We're sinful. We are sinful and we give in to the desires of lust. We forsake God's ways. We turn away from family. We turn away from marriages. We abandon spouses. We abandon children. I I say we because we're all part of humanity. We share in this guilt together. But in the good old days, uh, we have a picture. I'm not talking about Ozzie and Harriet or Leave it to Beaver. But I'm talking about a place where at least there was some semblance of a common faith. It was shared. But we have to fast forward into the current time and recognize the family in the present. Because, see, things have changed. (laughs) My daddy pointed out to me yesterday, things aren't the same today as they were when your mom and I got married 68 years ago. Well, duh. Even I had figured that one out. The world is changing, and it's changing rapidly. There's a different attitude toward marriage and the marriage relationship today. There's a different concept about family. In so many cases, I I visit with people and I discover that marriage is no longer seen as a spiritual union. Rather, it's the making of a deal. It's not about a covenant, but it's about a contract. And if someone violates the contract, they're guilty of breach of contract. I've been done dirty, and I'm going to get my due justice back. And so they sue for divorce. And I want to tell you something. Contracts can be breached, and contracts can be broken, but covenants that are properly sealed in the sight of God are everlasting. We've lost sight of that, and we've lost our sense of that, but I want you to know I still believe it to be true. 
I've done a lot of research, a lot of reading, a lot of studying on why marriages are failing at such an alarming rate around us. And can I just tell you, for all of the complexities of it, let's make it as simple as we possibly can. It's the lack of relationship and intimacy between the members of the family. And I know people say, no, there's more to it than that. No, it really isn't, folks. It is not harder than that. So you can't be so sure of that. Sure, I can. People get married, and you know what? They do their own thing. He goes here, she goes there. Home is just a base of operations where they meet and eat and sleep. That's it. And then all of a sudden, they find themselves in my office, and they're looking at me, and they're looking for answers. And I don't have the answers. I don't know what they did to mess up their marriage. And so I'll give them both a chance to talk, to share, to air their grievances. And they're good at it. And almost every time, I mean, folks, the percentage is so high, it's incredible. Almost every time, at some point during that process, while one is airing their grievance, the other one will look to me and say, well, they never told me that before. And they'll look at their spouse and say, I never knew you felt that way. And I always want to jump across the desk and say, do you people even talk to each other? It's just lack of communication, which means there's lack of intimacy. They're not connected. They're not feeling together, sharing together, working together, suffering together. Things have definitely changed within the family. As a result, things have changed within our communities. Outside the church, families live isolated. Isolated from their neighbors. Isolated from other family members. And so many, they seem to prefer it that way. It's kind of like, if I'm like that, then what happens in other people's lives is no concern of mine. It doesn't matter to me. It's it's not going to impact me. And in the meanwhile, because we're all getting into doing our own thing and we're isolating ourselves from each other and not seeing how our lives connect and interconnect, there is a public unconcern over forces that are gathering that are destructive to the family and to marriage. And to the welfare of our children. Say, what do you mean by that? I never imagined when I was starting into the ministry at 15, 16, 17, 18 years old that I would see the divorce rates that I've seen. I never imagined that there would be a flood of pornography across our country the way there is. I never imagined that there would be abandonment issues like there are in our culture. I never imagined that we would read or hear about every day in the news sex trafficking that's going on in our country. I never imagined that these things would happen. It seemed to be, it seemed to be beyond my ability to comprehend. I never imagined that I would see the day when large bodies, corporate bodies, institutions, entities would try to control state governments by telling them what laws they could pass or not pass. I never imagined a day when people would be upset because we passed a law saying who could go into what restroom. I never imagined a day when I would be called a bigot because I don't want some strange man that I do not know who seems to be sexually confused going into the restroom with my wife or my daughter or my granddaughters. 
I never imagined that we would come to that place. But we're there. And we come and we sit silently and think, oh, it'll be okay. Are you kidding me? I'm tired of being quiet. It's not going to be okay. It's not going to get better until God's people stand up and decide to make a change. It's not going to get better until we call people to come back. Can I just tell you something? What's going on is only the beginning. And who knows what the ultimate consequences of these trends and changes will be within our nation for our children and our children's children and our children's children's children. I find myself with this horrible, uneasy feeling that we're losing something that we really can't do without. And we won't realize until it's gone what we've lost and we won't have any way to get it back. After 40 years in the ministry, for the first time, I'm beginning to understand that phrase like a voice crying out in the wilderness, unheard and unheeded. Few hear, even fewer pay attention. What's that all mean? Man, it sounds kind of desperate, doesn't it? Makes a person just kind of get despondent and despairing. Not so quick, my friends. Let's, let's spend a few minutes, if we can, thinking about the family in the future. I just want to challenge us as God's people to learn to see our problems differently. Now, I know somebody's going to say, what do you mean to see our problems differently? I determined to do an experiment this week on social media. And I did it. And I didn't like the outcome. So what do you mean? I posted a video. I don't normally post stuff like this. But I did. It was a good video. Nothing wrong with it. I liked the video. It was a tribute to our young men and women in arms for the service that they do in the military. It presented them as brave and courageous and self-sufficient warriors of freedom. I put a little post attached to it. I did not use the words liberal or conservative, Republican or Democrat. I didn't even say Trump. It took all of about 10 hours before the trail line turned into an argument about liberalism versus conservative, border walls, and humanitarianism. Some of my old college friends sniping at each other. I want to remind you all of something. I want you to hear me very, very clearly, okay? I do not care what political party you belong to. I do not care whether you label yourself as liberal or conservative. I do not care who you voted for. If we disagree, we can disagree agreeably. And I'm going to tell you why we can. 
Because I understand something that I hope you understand, and if you don't, I hope you will when I finish telling you. Even if we disagree, you are not my enemy, and I am not your enemy. See, we do not battle against flesh and blood. We are at war with powers and principalities and the powers of darkness. We've got to stop seeing each other as the enemy and understand that there is an enemy out there. He is roaring and he is prowling and he's seeking whom he can devour. And I'm not him and you're not him, but he's real and he's after us, folks. If we can begin to see things in that way, we can understand one truth. No matter what party you belong to or what label you march under, Jesus Christ is still the answer. Christianity is a family affair. People say, oh, no, no, no. We're saved as individuals. Yes, we are. But I would challenge you to read the book of Acts. When that jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. When Peter went into the home of Cornelius... And he explained to him how to be saved. And we're told that Cornelius was baptized along with his household. So, well, yeah, but that means that they, they did this in use. No, it doesn't. People are saved individually, but I want to tell you something. Whenever the head of a household follows Christ, it changes the course of a home. That's the reason I think it is so important every now and again for myself to go back and read those words in Joshua chapter 24. He was at the end of his course. He was stepping out of public life. He was leaving politics. He was going into retirement. But he told the people as he was going, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Think about that. As for me, it's individual. It's personal. And my household. I'm the head of this home. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that... Listen, I know I get off on this and people say, well, you just kind of get wound up. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Mommas and daddies, take charge of your home. I don't care if they are 12, if they are 18, or they're 28. If they're sleeping under your roof and they're eating your food and bumping their knees under your table and utilizing your utilities, you have the right to tell them, get out of bed and get to God's house. Why? Because it's my house. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You can serve him and find it a joy, or you can serve him and find it a drudgery. But if you're sleeping under my roof, you're going to serve him. Whether it's joy or drudgery, that's up to you and your heart. But as long as you're in my house, why? Because it's my house. God gave it to me, and he made me the head of that household. And that's how it's going to be. Listen, the hope... The hope of our nation, the hope of our world is not based on this nation itself. It's not even, get this, it's not even based on the church. It's based on Jesus Christ, the head of the church. It's based on Christian homes. More than the church, listen, the church is not responsible to raise children. The church is responsible to assist parents, to come alongside families and help them do the best job they possibly can. But it's up to the home to bring that foundation and that base into place. 
Whenever that happens, the church is strengthened. The church's strength is enhanced any time that our families are strong and strengthened. We've got to continue to emphasize family. We've got to continue to understand that that's where our hope lies. We have to understand God's instructions for and to the family. In his farewell address to the nation of Israel, Moses, the great leader who had brought them out of Egypt and taken them through the wilderness, reminded the people to love God. And he instructed them about their families. He said, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. I like that word impress. How do you impress something? Lean on it. Impress them on your children. He didn't say, read them to your children hope they get it. No. He didn't say, tell them every now and again and see if your kids pick up on it. Drop a clue and see if they decide to follow God. No. He said, impress it upon them. Press it in. You ever held on to something until you got an impression in your skin? You guys, you ever grabbed a hold of a screwdriver and worked with it until when you turned it loose, your fingers had ridges in it from the handle of the screwdriver? Yeah? Here, students, I'll give you one you get. You ever wake up in the morning and have lines on your face from the pillowcase? Yeah, that's impression. All right? Something got impressed on you. It was your pillowcase. All right? Uh, Moses told these parents, he said, impress them God's commands, God's laws, God's ways on your children. Talk about it when you sit down and when you stand up. Talk about it when you're walking along the road. Talk about it when you're lying down at night and you're, you're talking through the walls or talking to each other from bed to bed. And talk about it when you get up in the morning. Paul got it. Paul understood this, this is something that, that's got to start early. He, he told, you remember when he wrote to Timothy? 2 Timothy chapter 3, and he said, from the infancy, you've known your, the Holy Scriptures. From the time you were a little bitty fellow, your mother and your grandmother were teaching you God's Word. A long time ago, I heard someone say that religion is more caught than taught. I believe that's true. But I also want you to understand something else. I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about relationship with Jesus Christ. That can't be taught. Now, we can teach children the Word of God, and it builds a foundation for them to believe. But whenever that time for belief comes, it's not about catching anything. It's not about teaching anything. It's about the Holy Spirit of God moving in their hearts and lives. And it doesn't matter whether they are children or they are teenage students or whether they are adults. God calls them out. What, what can we do at, at, at a time like this? What can the church do? Can we make a difference? Yes, absolutely we can. In the midst of these changing times, the divine purpose of God in establishing the home must be proclaimed. We must remind people that marriage is sacred, that the family is God's institution. We must be light and lighthouses for people who are lost in a raging sea of change. There are people who are dying in a dry and thirsty land that seems to be devoid of spiritual life. And we ought to be in an oasis where they can come and find the living water. Church, 
Our job is to offer Christ to a changing world. So I don't get what that's got to do with the book of Ruth. Well, if you haven't figured it out yet, let me take you back and let you listen one more time. Naomi and Ruth were two struggling widows. God provided for Ruth by giving her husband, Boaz, a godly man who not only took in his new wife, but also took in her mother-in-law, and he provided for them. He protected them. He cared for them. He met their needs. He was their kinsman redeemer. Verse 14 of Ruth chapter 4. Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. Now, for those who haven't figured it out, let me make it as plain as I can be. I have a kinsman redeemer. His name is Jesus Christ. He has bought me back. He has redeemed me from my sin and my bondage. He is my provider. He is my protector. He is the one who watches over me. He is the one who will keep me all of my days and make sure that I stay upon the right track. Mom, dad, husband, wife, married, single, broken, blended. I don't care what your situation is. If you are struggling, if you are hurting, I challenge you. Turn your eyes to the kinsman redeemer. Look to Jesus. He is our hope. He is our salvation. And he is our shelter in these times of storm. Run to him this morning. And you'll find his arms are open and he is ready to redeem you. I know many of you are sitting here and you're saying, you know, I get all of this. I understand all this. I've been taught all this. I've heard all of this. Praise God. Are you walking with your kinsman redeemer? But if there's just one of you in this room who says, I don't have a kinsman redeemer. Oh, yes, you do. You just haven't let him pay your price yet. And this morning, if you'll confess your sin to him and turn from it and invite him into your life today, he will buy you back. And he will take you to his home. And he will make you his very own. It's a life changer. Would you let him do that? Let's bow our heads together. In just a moment, we're going to stand together and sing a song of surrender, a song of commitment. I honestly have no idea what God's speaking to you this morning. <laughs> I just know he was speaking to my heart so hard, so loud, so strongly when I was preparing for this morning, I had to say what I said. And, and I know, I know that their families are struggling and hurting. But there's hope and there's help and there's healing in Jesus and it may be that this morning there's a husband and a wife who just maybe need to cling to each other and pray for one another. That's okay, you do that. 
Maybe you're here and you're broken, you're wounded, and you're just trying to figure out how to keep it together and keep things moving. Maybe you need someone to pray with you. We'll meet you right here. We'd love to pray with you. God's altar is open. You can always talk to him. You can come to the altar. You can kneel right where you are. You can stand where you are and talk to him. He's ready to hear your cry. Would you talk to him? If you're here and you need a relationship with your kinsman redeemer, you need to meet Jesus Christ and experience the life that he offers. We'd love to explain to you how that happens, show you, help you, assist you in any way we can. When we stand and begin to sing, would you come and just tell me, Pastor, I need that relationship. I won't embarrass you or put you on the spot. But I want you to know today there's hope. There's life in Jesus. Would you call on him? Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you've not left us alone even in the midst of our struggles. That you sent a kinsman redeemer before we even knew we were going to need one. It's because you know us. Before we ever were, you knew us. Lord, I look across this room and I see faces. You see hearts. I see some faces that reveal their pain, their hurt, their struggle. I see some they are suppressing and holding everything in. Lord, you're the only one who can speak to their hearts. Call them to yourself. So I pray for them right now that they would hear your voice. Father, if their families need healing, I pray for your touch. Their husbands and wives that came in this morning struggling, they're sitting next to each other right now. They're trying to make it look good, but there's a battle. Bring peace. If there's some students over here who are at war with their parents, I, I pray, Father, that you'd create a ceasefire and bring healing into that home. Father, above everything else, I pray for the one who's in this room who does not know Jesus Christ personally. Draw them to yourself. And let them today experience a new birth. Life. Life eternal and abundant through Jesus. That's our prayer. So whatever you desire to do in our lives, Father, here we are. We are open. We are available. We are accessible. Speak to us. Direct us. Change us. Have your way, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.